River of Wisdom, a retreat guide on the Rosary. Introduction. Many stories about the Rosary adorn church history. A particularly moving one comes from Scotland in the year 1615. On March 10th of that year, at the famous intersection of Glasgow Cross, in the city of Glasgow, a Catholic priest was executed. He was hung, drawn, and quartered, according to the practices of a bloody and violent era. The priest was St. John Ogilvy, a Jesuit, who had snuck into the country in disguise in order to minister to Scottish Catholics who were being persecuted. After less than a year of clandestine preaching and sacraments, he was betrayed and arrested. Then he was imprisoned and tortured in order to force him to reveal information about his collaborators, but even torture wouldn't make him talk. Eventually, he was condemned to death for treason because he refused to accept the king's supposed authority over religious worship and teaching. So they marched him through the streets and up the gallows, where he was publicly hanged and disemboweled as a warning to other undercover Catholics. Somehow, throughout his imprisonment and torture, he had managed to keep possession of his rosary. Maybe it was praying the rosary that had given him the strength to endure so much suffering. In any case, on the day of his execution, he still had his rosary with him, hidden from view. When they pushed him off the stairs of the gallows, as the noose tightened around his neck, he managed to toss that rosary out into the dense crowd of spectators. Tradition tells us that the beads were caught by one of the saint's anti-Catholic enemies, who from that moment on began a spiritual journey that eventually led him into the Catholic Church where he lived a devout and exemplary faith for the rest of his life. Certainly it wasn't the physical rosary that changed that man's heart. Only God's grace can do that. But the rosary was clearly one of the channels of God's grace for him, as it has been for millions of Catholics over the course of the centuries, from popes to paupers. It can be a powerful instrument of grace. It is a powerful form of prayer, tried and true. To appreciate and benefit from the rosary more fully, we have to locate it within Marian devotion in general. And that's what this retreat guide, River of Wisdom, a retreat guide on the rosary, will try to do. In the first meditation, we will look at the essence of Marian devotion and one fundamental form of that devotion. In the second meditation, we will look at two other basic forms of Marian devotion. And in the conference, we will talk about the practical activities including praying the rosary, that can help us develop and benefit from this devotion in our daily lives. But now, before we dive in, take a few moments to remind yourself that the person most interested in you having a good experience of this retreat guide is God himself. He is eager to spend this time with you and has something to say to you. Thank him for that and ask him for all the graces you need to grow in your relationship with him, especially the grace to take a refreshing drink from our very own River of Wisdom. First Meditation A Mother's Presence the Essence of Marian Devotion 
The essence of a healthy devotion to Mary is found in Jesus. Mary is only important because Jesus is important. God could have chosen to raise up our Savior from the dust of the earth as he had raised up the first Adam, but instead he chose to give the Savior a human mother, Mary, and to involve her intimately in our Savior's life and mission. God didn't have to do it this way, but in his infinite wisdom, he chose to. Here's how the Second Vatican Council put it. The Father of mercies willed that the Incarnation should be preceded by assent on the part of the predestined Mother, so that just as a woman had a share in bringing about death, so also a woman should contribute to life. Healthy devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, then, will always flow from and contribute to our love for and faith in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Mary's greatness takes nothing away from God's glory and Christ's uniqueness. Rather, it is part of the Lord's chosen plan for the redemption of the world. It's important for us to remember this, because many non-Catholic Christians don't understand it, and their suspicion can negatively impact our own Marian devotion. We need to be able to show them, and ourselves, the connection between Jesus and Mary. When the classic film The Passion of the Christ was still in production, the producers were working hard to promote it. No Hollywood studio wanted to get involved with such a religious film, so the promotion had to be done from the ground up. They took an early version of the film on tour, showing it to Christian pastors and religious leaders. One of these private showings gathered almost 200 Protestant pastors in a conference room. I remember talking to them after we watched the film. I was the only Catholic priest in the group. I was curious to see what their reaction would be to how Mary was depicted in the film, because in that movie version of The Passion, she is rightly given a central role, but also a very Catholic role. When I asked some of those Protestant pastors what they thought about that, I was pleasantly surprised. They would smile and say, of course, of course Mary was close to Jesus through all of his suffering. Of course she had a special role to play in the Lord's mission. I had just never thought about it that way before. It's something we can easily take for granted. Mary is important for the church because Jesus is important, and he chose to involve her in his saving mission. That's the essence of Marian devotion. The Power of Mary's Presence God chose to involve Mary in a unique way in the life and mission of Jesus in the history of salvation. But how does he want her to be involved in our lives and missions, in our personal histories of salvation? Marian devotion takes at least three basic forms in our lives as followers and apostles of Christ. The first of these forms is simply the power of Mary's presence. It is a spiritual, not a physical presence, but it is no less powerful for that. As baptized Christians, we have become members of the body of Christ, adopted by grace into the family of God. And so, in this order of grace, Mary has become our spiritual mother. Jesus revealed this to us when he was dying on the cross and spoke to Mary and to his youngest apostle, St. John the Evangelist. Here's how St. John himself describes the exchange. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. The Catechism picks up on this when it describes Mary's role in the life of the Church and of all humanity. In a wholly singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope, and burning charity in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. For this reason, she is a mother to us in the order of grace. Through prayers and holy images and other devotional practices we will talk about in the conference, Mary accompanies each one of us in our journey of faith, comforting and strengthening us with the power of her spiritual motherhood. The Primacy of Grace When we cultivate our awareness of and appreciation for this presence, it reminds us of one of the most important truths having to do with our Christian lives and having to do with our desire to grow to Christian maturity, the primacy of grace. Mary's special role in salvation history didn't flow from her having some kind of superpower. She wasn't Wonder Woman. No, she was a normal human being, just like us, except for one thing. From the moment of her conception, she was full of grace, full of God's grace. And that's how the angel greeted her at the Annunciation, when she became the mother of the Lord. He addressed her as full of grace. She is special and wonderful and honored because God's grace set her apart and because she cooperated generously with that grace. The Blessed Virgin Mary is a very different figure from the goddesses of pagan, non-Christian religions. Those goddesses are seen as divine by nature, and they are worshipped as divinities. But we don't worship Mary as if she were a goddess. We venerate her for the special role God has given her, and for how she fulfilled that role. But it is God and His grace that made the difference. It's always God's grace that makes the difference. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot make ourselves holy. As Jesus put it during the Last Supper, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, because without me you can do nothing. Mary's presence in our lives is a constant reminder of that essential truth. It reminds us that we are just children in the order of grace, that we are dependent, that we are needy. This is the secret to true humility. And without true humility, we cannot grow in the divine wisdom that we long for and that we need. God's grace is his love being poured continually into our lives. And the presence in our lives of Mary, who is full of grace, reminds us of that love and keeps us open to receiving it. Pope Benedict XVI explained the power of Mary's presence when he went to the famous Marian shrine in Lourdes, France, back in 2008. He was commenting on the smile that the Blessed Virgin Mary showed when she appeared there to St. Bernadette of Subaru in 1858. He said, In the smile of the most eminent of all creatures looking down on us is reflected our dignity as children of God. This smile, a true reflection of God's tenderness, is the source of an invincible hope. The power of Mary's spiritual maternal presence, this is the first form that Marian devotion should take in our daily lives. 
Conclusion Mary Near the Center The power of Mary's smile was also important to blessed Pope John Paul II. When he was elected Pope, there was no image of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the most important plaza of the Christian world, the plaza outside St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. There were statues of Jesus, of the apostles, of saints and martyrs from every corner of time and space, but the spiritual mother of them all was missing. And so John Paul II put things right. He commissioned a mosaic of the Madonna and Child and had it installed high up on one of the Vatican palaces overlooking St. Peter's Plaza. The power of Mary's presence is important for the Church as a whole and for each one of us. Jesus was accompanied by Mary's grace-filled presence throughout his life. He allowed himself to be comforted, strengthened, and inspired by her motherly love and concern, especially during the agonizing hours of his passion and crucifixion. Do we allow the power of Mary's grace-filled presence to strengthen and accompany us? Have we placed her image in the center of our hearts, the way Blessed John Paul II placed her in the center of St. Peter's Square? Let's take some time now to reflect prayerfully on how we are living this first form of Marian devotion and on the beauty of Mary's role in the drama of salvation. The following questions and biblical quotations may help your meditation. Questions for personal reflection or group discussion. If I had to explain the essence of Marian devotion to a Christian friend who is skeptical about it, how would I do so? In my efforts to grow spiritually and to help build up Christ's kingdom around me, how much do I depend on God's grace and how much do I depend on my own human efforts? When have I personally experienced the power of Mary's spiritual presence in my life? Savor that gift from God and thank Him for it. Four Biblical Passages to Help Your Meditation When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. Lord, my heart is not haughty. I do not set my sights too high. I have taken no part in great affairs and wonders beyond my scope. No, I hold myself in quiet and in silence, like a little child in its mother's arms. Like a little child, so I keep myself. Let Israel hope in the Lord henceforth and forever. Psalm 131, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to ransom those under the law, so that we might receive adoption. As proof that you are children, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad because of her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, so that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink with delight at her abundant breasts. For thus says the Lord, I will spread prosperity over her like a river, like an overflowing torrent, the wealth of nations. You shall nurse, carried in her arms, cradled upon her knees, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. In Jerusalem you shall find your comfort. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 10 through 13. Second meditation, a mother's help. Learning from Mary's example. The power of Mary's motherly presence made a difference in Christ's life, and it can make a difference in our lives too. But devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary has a second and a third form as well. The second form is her example. Mary was the first Christian, the first and most perfect follower of Jesus Christ. Being free from sin and filled to overflowing with God's grace, she shows forth the new life that Christianity is all about. Children learn how to be human from the example of their mother. They learn through her example and instruction how to talk, how to behave, how to relate to other people, how to tie their shoes. Just so, in the wisdom of God's divine plan for the church, we who are God's children by the adoption of grace learn how to be Christians through the shining example of our mother in the order of grace. St. Louis de Montfort, author of the spiritual classic True Devotion to Mary, takes this concept of Mary as the shining example of Christian living even one step further. He describes how the role of Mary in our lives is to shape Christ within us, to mold us to his image, just as through the Holy Spirit she molded Christ himself in her womb. Dante's Divine Comedy is one of the most influential works of literature in the history of Western civilization. It is an epic poem written in the late Middle Ages and divided into three parts, hell, purgatory, and heaven. In the section on purgatory, Dante shows a mountain with seven levels. On each level are souls who are being purified from leftover sinful tendencies in preparation for their entrance into heaven. There are seven levels because there are seven capital sins, seven basic sins from which the dozens of other sins are derived. On each level of the mountain, the souls are receiving a purifying punishment that counteracts whichever capital sin dominated their life on earth. It's a fascinating and enlightening study of selfishness and its destructive power in our lives. But he finishes up his description of each level by showing how the virtue most needed by the souls who are stuck there, that virtue that would correct their dominant capital sin, 
was exemplified in the Gospels by the Blessed Virgin Mary. The souls suffering from sloth, for instance, have to learn from Mary's example of loving zeal when she went into the hill country with haste to help her pregnant elderly cousin Elizabeth. These brief glimpses of Mary's shining virtue are among the great treasures of the Gospels. In them, the Holy Spirit has preserved just enough scenes and comments on the behavior and actions of the Blessed Virgin Mary to paint a portrait of what a mature Christian looks like. When we contemplate those Gospel scenes and Mary's example of obeying, loving, and following Jesus Christ, we are brought to know, love, and follow Him more closely ourselves. Absorbing our Christian life through contemplating the example of our spiritual mother comes spontaneously to those who are in tune with the Holy Spirit. I once received an email from a friend who illustrated this principle beautifully. She had just been to the funeral of a relative who had died because of suicide. The family was quite close, and the suicide had been a terrible shock to everyone. It was a true tragedy, and she was reeling in the midst of it. As she was sharing her experience in her email and asking me to support the family with my prayers, the following line just flowed spontaneously from her fingers as she typed. I can't imagine Mary's agony at the loss of Jesus. There is so much to learn, and I only feel I am skimming the surface. I pray to do His will. In the midst of her own confusion, pain, and sorrow, her heart just naturally reached out to Mary in order to find comfort, meaning, and strength. She was learning from her spiritual mother how to suffer as a Christian. And we all need to learn from her. Another friend I know was telling me how much she had suffered when she experienced a miscarriage. And through it all, the Holy Spirit kept bringing to mind the image of Michelangelo's famous sculpture of the Pietà. This sculpture shows Mary holding the dead body of her crucified son in her lap. And yet, in spite of the horror and the tragedy of that loss, in the sculpture, Mary's face shows great peace, the peace that sprang from her great faith, and her hands manifest a kind of supernatural strength and trust in God's wisdom. That image allowed this woman to find light and grace in the suffering of her own miscarriage. Mary's example of Christian living, of Christian virtue, of Christian thinking and behaving and deciding, this is the second fundamental form of Marian devotion. Invoking Mary's Intercession The third fundamental form of Marian devotion consists in invoking her intercession. God is not greedy or selfish. Instead of reserving every piece of salvation history to his own direct action, he has chosen to involve us in his work of redemption. His grace acts within us, but also mysteriously leaves room for us to act, to decide, to be creative, to help each other, and to intercede for each other through prayer. I can ask you to pray for me and I know God will hear your prayer. You can do the same with me. It gives God glory when his children work together like that, just as parents are filled with healthy pride when their children support each other and are involved in each other's needs, projects, and celebrations. Of all the saintly intercessors that we have in heaven, of all the Christian brothers and sisters who've gone before us to the Father's house, none are as loving or as powerful in their supernatural aid as Mary, the mother of our Lord. She showed this even when she was here on earth. The first miracle that Jesus performed happened at the wedding in Cana, 
Ancient wedding celebrations would last for days, or maybe even an entire week, and all the relatives and neighbors would celebrate the marriage with great joy and fanfare. Wine was an important part of that celebration. And at this wedding in Cana, the wine had run out before the celebration was done, a terribly shameful situation for the young couple to find themselves in. Well, Mary, the attentive mother, discovered the problem before anyone else, and she went right over to her son, Jesus, and told him about it. And although he hadn't been planning on doing any miracles that day, he actually told her, my hour has not yet come, he granted her petition. He miraculously transformed about 120 gallons of water into excellent wine. This is the pattern for countless other miracles that have occurred through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary ever since. It makes a lot of sense that Mary would have a particular influence in the court of the king, because the king is truly her son. This was God's plan for his people since the beginning. Just as the human race fell through the sin of Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, so it is fitting for the redemption to involve a new Adam, Christ, and also a new Eve, the Blessed Virgin Mary. We see this role of Mary foreshadowed quite explicitly in the Old Testament. There, among God's chosen people, the most influential role of the Queen of Israel was not exercised by the king's wives, but by their mothers. Here's how the first book of Kings describes the way that King Solomon received his queen mother, Bathsheba, when she came to make a request of him. Then Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, and the king stood up to meet her and paid her homage. Then he sat down upon his throne, and a throne was provided for the king's mother, who sat at his right. She said, There is one small favor I would ask of you. Do not refuse me. The king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. This scene shows the role that the queen mother had in ancient Israel, a role that imperfectly foreshadowed the more perfect relationship that would become established for all eternity between Jesus and Mary and the rest of God's family. Mary's special role as heavenly intercessor has been central to the lived faith of the church since its earliest years. In fact, one of the earliest non-scriptural prayers used by Christians was a hymn to the Blessed Virgin Mary. It was already being used in the Coptic liturgy in the 3rd century. Its Latin name is Subtum Presidium, and it goes like this. We turn to you for protection, O Holy Mother of God. Listen to our prayers and help us in our needs. Deliver us from every evil, O glorious and blessed Virgin. Amen. 500 years later, in the chaos and strife of the early Middle Ages, we find another eloquent example of Christians turning to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. At the time, the most important city of Christendom was under siege by Muslim invaders. To repel the attack, the Christians didn't use military might or diplomacy, but prayer, including the invocation of Mary's intercession. Every day, the patriarch of the city, St. Germanus, led a procession around the tops of the walls that protected the city, a procession in full sight of the besiegers. The procession included prayers, hymns, incense, and gave a prominent place to a venerated image of Mary, Mother of God. The siege and the daily procession lasted an entire year, and in the end, the city was miraculously liberated. 
Pope Benedict XVI made reference to this miraculous historical event in one of his catechetical instructions. In fact, Pope Benedict explained, Constantinople was liberated from the besiegement. The adversaries decided to permanently let go of the idea of establishing their capital in the city that was the symbol of the Christian Empire, and the appreciation for divine help was extremely great among the people. In that same catechesis, the Pope quoted a spiritual reflection from St. Germanus that highlights the Blessed Virgin's role as motherly intercessor for all Christians. It goes like this. May it ever happen, Most Holy Mother of God, that heaven and earth, honored by your presence, and you with your departure, leave men and women without your protection? No. It is impossible to think of such things. You did not at all abandon those to whom you had guaranteed salvation. You, O Mother, are close to all and protect all, and although our eyes are unable to see you, we know, O Most Holy One, that you dwell among all of us and make yourself present in the most varied ways. This is our spiritual mother, the Queen Mother of Christ's everlasting kingdom, someone we can call on for help today, tomorrow, and always. Conclusion, an artist's insight. A famous artistic image of the Blessed Virgin Mary brilliantly expresses these two forms of Marian devotion, her example and her intercession. It was painted by Michelangelo towards the end of his long life as part of his last judgment, the monumental fresco adorning the Sistine Chapel inside the Vatican, the chapel where the cardinals gather to elect popes. In this painting, angels are blowing the trumpets to announce the end of history and the moment of the last judgment. In the lower left-hand corner, the dead are rising and being brought to Jesus, who occupies the center of the painting for judgment. Those who died in grace are then sent up into heaven, while those who died in rebellion against God are dragged down to hell by voracious demons. Clinging to the side of Christ, watching the people who come to be judged, is a feminine figure clothed in red and blue. It's a symbolic figure of the church, but it is also a depiction of the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you look closely, you will see that all the other people who come into Christ's presence for judgment are either naked or barely clothed. This symbolizes the very nature of judgment. Nothing can be hidden from the eyes of God. All our sins and flaws are open to His loving gaze. Only Mary is fully clothed. And this artistic symbolism is a reflection of the theological truth that through God's grace and her cooperation with that grace, she was free from sin. She has no moral or spiritual flaws that she would want to hide from the Lord. In other words, she is our great model and shining example of Christian living. And if you look closely again, you can see another artistic choice that expresses a deep theological truth. In the fresco, Mary is clinging to the Lord in such a way as to be able to whisper into his ear, as she looks at the people who come in front of the throne of judgment, we can imagine her interceding on their behalf, talking to her son about each of them with maternal concern, imploring his mercy. This is our spiritual mother, our mother in the order of grace. She shows us the way into Christ's heart with her example of every Christian virtue, and she pleads with him to help us attain all the graces we need to follow that way and live those virtues 
in the often confusing and difficult challenges of life in a fallen world. Take some time now to prayerfully reflect on these two aspects of Marian devotion, her inspiring and transforming example and her powerful motherly intercession. Ask God what he wants you to take away from this meditation and don't be afraid to listen to his answer. The following questions and Bible passages may help your meditation. Questions for personal reflection or group discussion. Reflect on my own experience of Marian devotion up to this point in my spiritual life. What has been most influential for me up to now? Her presence, her example, or her intercession? How consciously and frequently do I contemplate Mary's example of following and accompanying Jesus? How consciously and frequently should I contemplate it? How firmly do I believe in the power of Mary's intercession? What personal experiences have affected my faith in that intercession? Three biblical passages to help your meditation. During those days, Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Most blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed are you who believe that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servers, Do whatever he tells you. John chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. When the angels went away from them to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go then to Bethlehem to see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known the message that had been told to them about this child. All who heard it were amazed by what they had been told by the shepherds. 
And Mary kept all these things, reflecting on them in her heart. Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. Conference, Activating Marian Devotion. Introduction. We have spent some time meditating on the essence of Marian devotion and three of its most fundamental forms. Mary's spiritual presence in our lives, her example, and her powerful intercession. But how do we actually practice this devotion in our daily lives? In other words, what activities or spiritual exercises help us develop and benefit from this devotion? Here we enter into the difference between Marian devotion and Marian devotions. Throughout the 2,000-year history of our Catholic Church, many different pious practices have emerged under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that can give expression to Marian devotion and allow it to play its proper role in our spiritual development. These are called Marian devotions. In this conference, I would like to talk about three of them. Most likely, we have all heard of these three Marian devotions, but we may benefit from freshening up our appreciation of them and reflecting a bit on how we may be able to use them more fruitfully in our own lives. The Rosary The most common and most complete way to bring Marian devotion to life is through praying the Rosary. The Rosary is a rich, multifaceted prayer that has been a favorite spiritual exercise for countless saints, both religious and laypeople. In fact, since the year 1900, there has not been a single pope who hasn't officially encouraged praying the Rosary. No other pious devotion has received such universal and consistent encouragement. We've all seen Rosary beads at some time or another, though maybe not all of us have actually used them to pray the rosary. This prayer is substantial enough to be a favorite of popes and professors, and at the same time is simple enough to be used by children, and by people so sick and weak that they can't pray in any other way. It consists in a powerful combination of vocal and mental prayer, using the familiar words of the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and the Glory Be, as a kind of rhythmic background in which our mind and heart turn their attention the important events in the life of Jesus and Mary. While praying the rosary, we sometimes focus on the words of those familiar prayers. Other times, we focus almost entirely on the different mysteries from the lives of Jesus and Mary, gazing at them through the lens of faith in order to allow the Holy Spirit to give us new insights and to inflame our hearts with faith, hope, and love. When we pray the rosary in that fashion, it is as if we were sitting in our mother's lap and looking through a photo album of our family history together, and she explains each picture as we contemplate it. During some moments or seasons in our spiritual journey, we experience joy or suffering, or needs or yearning, so intense that it's hard for us to express adequately in our own words what we are experiencing in the depths of our soul and heart. In those times, the familiar formulas of the rosary can come to our rescue giving us a way to lift our hearts to God when other words seem to fail us. The rosary has proven so spiritually fruitful in the history of the Church that in 1571, Pope St. Pius V instituted an annual liturgical feast in its honor, the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, 
originally known as Our Lady of Victory, on October 7th. In modern times, this feast is kind of expanded, making the entire month of October especially connected to praying the rosary. The specific occasion that gave rise to this liturgical celebration is worth remembering. Back in 1571, the future of Christian Europe hung in the balance. A vast and powerful Turkish Muslim empire, the Ottoman Empire, was gradually steamrolling westward, sweeping away all Christian resistance. It didn't help that the Protestant Reformation had spawned horrible disunity and even war among the Christian nations of Europe, making them especially vulnerable to external attack. Add to that a recent fire that had devastated the great Venetian naval fleet and a famine spreading throughout almost the whole of Italy, and you get a truly dire situation. Pope St. Pius V was one of the few Christian leaders who saw the Muslim threat for what it truly was and did something about it. He added fervent prayers to brilliant diplomacy and successfully gathered an international fleet of over a hundred ships to repel the onslaught of the Ottoman Emperor Selimus II, whose fleet outnumbered the Christians by almost three to one. On October 7th, the first Sunday of October that year, the Europeans engaged the Turks in a sea battle near the Greek harbor of Lepanto. That same day, the Pope had arranged that fervent prayers be offered all throughout Christendom for a successful outcome. He asked, in a special way, for the Christian faithful to invoke heavenly aid through praying the rosary. In Rome and in many other places, huge rosary processions were held for this intention. On the verge of battle, Don John of Austria, commander-in-chief of the Christian forces, let fly the signal for engagement by hoisting a flag given him by the Pope on which an image of Christ crucified was embroidered. All the sailors and soldiers knelt in prayer before the image of the crucifix while the two fleets drew together just as the sun rose in the east. The very day of the battle in the afternoon, St. Pius V was meeting with some cardinals when he suddenly stood up from the table, walked briskly to the window, opened the shutters, and peered into the sky for a few moments. Then he shut the window and called the meeting to a close. He told the flabbergasted cardinals, Now is not the time to talk business, but to thank God for the victory he has given to the arms of the Christians. He had been granted miraculous knowledge of the equally miraculous victory that the Christian fleet had won over the Turks. The Holy Father attributed this victory to Mary's intercession. Afterwards, he added the title, Our Lady Help of Christians, to the famous Marian Litany of Loretto. And that is when he added the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary into the liturgical calendar on October 7th, the anniversary of the crucial victory at Lepanto. It was also during the papacy of Pope St. Pius V that the form in which the rosary is prayed today was given official status. Up to that point, different methods of praying the rosary had developed organically, gradually, from the times of the Desert Fathers through the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. It had been promoted in a special way by the Dominicans in the 15th century, and it is no coincidence that Pope St. Pius V, the great champion of the rosary, was a Dominican himself. But all the modern popes have also championed this ancient, powerful, beautiful prayer. Here's how Pope Paul VI described it in his encyclical letter to the bishops on the Mother of Christ. If evils increase, the devotion of the people of God should also increase. And so, venerable brothers, we want you to take the lead in urging and encouraging people to pray ardently to our most merciful Mother Mary 
by saying the rosary during the month of October, as we have already indicated. This prayer is well suited to the devotion of the people of God, most pleasing to the Mother of God, and most effective in gaining heaven's blessings. The Second Vatican Council recommended use of the rosary to all the sons of the Church, not in express words, but in unmistakable fashion in this phrase. Let them value highly the pious practices and exercises directed to the Blessed Virgin and approved over the centuries by the Magisterium. As the history of the Church makes clear, this very fruitful way of praying is not only efficacious in warding off evils and preventing calamities, but is also of great help in fostering Christian life. It nourishes the Catholic faith, which readily takes on new life from a timely commentary on the sacred mysteries, and it turns minds towards the truths that have been taught us by God. Images of Our Lady Besides the rosary, the preeminent Marian devotional practice, perhaps the next most popular way that Christians have expressed their Marian devotion through the centuries has been through the prayerful veneration of images of Our Lady. Paintings, icons, and even miraculous images like Our Lady of Guadalupe have adorned Christian churches since the very early centuries of our faith. The earliest surviving image of the Blessed Virgin Mary is a fresco in the catacombs of Priscilla in Rome, showing Mary holding the baby Jesus. Throughout the history of the Church, the greatest Christian artists have filled the world with Marian paintings and sculptures that both instruct and inspire us. Finding a favorite image of the Blessed Virgin Mary and keeping it in a place where we can see it often is a wise and simple way to foster a healthy Marian devotion. In the first place, holy images like these remind us of Mary's presence in our lives, which is the first fundamental form of Marian devotion. When we see the image, we are moved to remember that we have a spiritual mother who, in accordance with God's providential plan of salvation, watches over us. The images themselves also reflect symbolically and artistically the beauty of Mary's virtue, the different scenes and encounters from her life as the first Christian. In this way, they tie into the second fundamental form of Marian devotion, her example. Finally, beautiful Marian images stir up our confidence in Mary's intercession and in the grace of God, encouraging us to invoke her and allow her to share in our struggles and in our joys. In the grottos that make up the lower level of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, you find various chapels dedicated to the memory of Our Lady. Each of these chapels has an image of Mary over the altar. Many of the images are linked to Marian devotions that are popular in particular parts of the world. Lithuania, Mexico, Hungary. A tour of these little chapels is like an international Marian pilgrimage. One of the chapels is dedicated in honor of the Madonna della Bocciata, the rejected Madonna. The miraculous story of this image illustrates the role that Marian images can play in our difficult faith journeys. In the 15th century, this fresco had been located in a more prominent place in the upper basilica. One night, a drunken soldier who had been gambling, playing bocce, and had lost, came to the image to complain to Our Lady. He was so mad at losing and so drunk that he blasphemed the Blessed Virgin and hurled one of the bocce balls at the image. It hit the fresco right in Mary's face and bounced away. But as the soldier continued to yell and curse, one of those rare and unlikely miracles occurred. The image of the Blessed Virgin began to bleed, 
right where it had been hit with the bocce ball. The drops of blood flowed from the image and fell to the marble floor beneath it. As they flowed, they began to disintegrate the marble and created small cavities in the floor. No one knows for sure what happened to the soldier, but the rejected image and the marble cavities became famous. And so when St. Peter's Basilica was reconstructed a hundred years later, they preserved both the image and the pieces of marble, relocating them to a chapel in the lower grottos. As Catholics, we don't worship images. That would be idolatry. But we do use images to remind us of the truths of our faith. In this case, the truth that Mary really is part of the story of our Christian lives, and that as our spiritual mother, she is interested and involved in our journey of faith. And every once in a while, God also uses images, even throwing in a miracle or two, to encourage us to live, as St. Paul put it, by faith and not by sight. Shrines and Pilgrimages A third pious activity that has emerged over the centuries as a practical way to live out Marian devotion consists of visits or pilgrimages to Marian shrines. A Christian shrine is simply a place consecrated or specially dedicated to a specific event or aspect having to do with the history of salvation. Pilgrims and visitors come to shrines to celebrate the faith, to pray, to make a spiritual retreat, to do penance, or maybe to ask God for a special favor. Shrines dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary have been popular since before the Middle Ages. Many of them are built around miraculous events or apparitions linked to the Blessed Virgin Mary's special care for the Church. We have all heard, for example, of the Shrine of Our Lady of Lourdes in France, or the Shrine of Our Lady of Fatima in Portugal. The most visited Catholic shrine in the world is the one dedicated to Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City. It has drawn tens of millions of pilgrims since Our Lady appeared there to St. Juan Diego in 1531, miraculously leaving her brilliant image emblazoned on his tilma, or tunic. But with or without miracles, everywhere the Church spreads the faith, Marian shrines, large and small, are eventually built in order to provide places of spiritual refreshment and instruction for all of us. Pope Paul VI, in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council, instituted an annual meeting with rectors of Marian shrines. In those meetings, he described these shrines as spiritual clinics, testimonies of miraculous deeds and of a continual wave of devotion, luminous stars in the church's sky, and centers of devotion, of prayer, of recollection, of spiritual refreshment. By making brief or extended pilgrimages to these shrines on a regular basis, every year, for example, whether they are close to home or far away, we are able to nourish our minds and hearts on Mary's presence, example, and intercession. We can make them individually, as a family, or even with the whole parish. It's a practice that all of us should try to weave into our hectic lives to make sure that the hustle and bustle of the modern world doesn't, little by little, suffocate the true life of our souls, faith, hope, and love for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Conclusion A Flowing River
We have presented these three common Marian devotions as separate activities. But in reality, they are almost always connected. After all, the most common thing to do when we visit Marian shrines or pause to contemplate a Marian image is to pray the rosary. Mary herself, when she appeared to St. Bernadette at Lourdes in 1858, carried a rosary and prayed it with the young woman. In her other miraculous appearances, she has often encouraged us to pray the rosary, echoing the dozens of papal letters that have given us the same encouragement. In the end, the easiest and surest way to allow Mary's spiritual presence to nourish our souls, to learn from her shining example, and to invoke her unique intercession is through the rosary. The rosary is a prayer that flows gently but powerfully through individual hearts and through the history of salvation, like a deep and mighty river irrigating the vast fields of the church, a river of heavenly wisdom, constantly ready to nourish our souls, if only we'll pause to take a drink. Spend some time now reflecting prayerfully on the ten questions of the personal questionnaire. Maybe the Holy Spirit will use them to give you some new insights or ideas about how you can better activate Marian devotion in your pursuit of holiness. Personal Questionnaire How would I describe my relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary? What images that I keep around me, paintings, pictures, photos, etc., are most meaningful to me personally, and why? What are my favorite images of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and why are they meaningful to me? What geographical places hold a special spiritual significance for me, and why? Reflect on the times I have visited or have made a pilgrimage to Marian churches or shrines. What did I learn from those visits, and how did they affect my relationship with God? If I have never made a pilgrimage of this kind, Think about what it might be like to do so. Why do I think God wants me to have a mother in the order of grace? What role has the rosary played in my spiritual life up to now? After going through this retreat guide, how would I describe the role I would like the rosary to play in my spiritual life?
Pope John Paul II wrote the following sentences describing the rosary. Try to explain what he meant in my own words. The rosary, though clearly Marian in character, is at heart a Christocentric prayer. In the sobriety of its elements, it has all the depth of the gospel message in its entirety, of which it can be said to be a compendium. Pope Paul VI wrote the following sentences describing how to pray the rosary. Reflect on what you could do to make your own prayer of the rosary better reflect this description. By its nature, the recitation of the rosary calls for a quiet rhythm and a lingering pace, helping the individual to meditate on the mysteries of the Lord's life as seen through the eyes of her who is closest to the Lord. In this way, the unfathomable riches of these mysteries are disclosed. Further reading. The Rosary of the Virgin Mary by Pope John Paul II. Mother of the Redeemer by Pope John Paul II. 33 Days to Morning Glory by Father Michael Gately. The World's First Love. Mary, the Mother of God, by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hail Holy Queen, the Mother of God in the Word of God, by Scott Hahn. Please tell us how we can improve future retreat guides by giving us your feedback at rcspirituality.org. If you liked River of Wisdom, a retreat guide on the rosary, please help support future retreat guides by making a donation at rcspirituality.org. Retreat guides are a service of Regnum Christi and the Legionaries of Christ. regnumchristi.org, legionofchrist.org. Retreat guides are produced by Coronation. coronationmedia.com.